We're going to take a look at this document, if you're ready, Corey. I am. I've got it open in front of me here. Yep. Okay. So it's called Access to Prescribe Safer Supply in British Columbia Policy Direction. This was published July 15th of last year from the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions and the Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. We've looked through this a few times. I've been through it a few times just to kind of get a feel for where, you know, where the work was done, what is possible with the the current guidelines and, and legal issues that they've had to face federally. And my general take on it is that um, I, I think they've done a really good job of using the right language. Uh, the only thing I don't like is the uh, safer supply. I don't like <laughs> the, the extra R on there because it's uh, it's a toe in the, uh, they're just keeping the one toe on the other line there by, you know, they don't want to endorse using drugs of any kind. Uh, you know, even though we understand fully that pharmaceuticals are a risk versus benefit situation, this is, mm -hmm. this is kind of what we need to talk about if we're going to talk about it in a mature scientific fashion, fact-based fashion. So yeah, they, they have an ex executive summary. They go through talking about, you know, some of the problems. There's a lot of uh, poli politics as far as tiptoeing around uh, certain special interest groups and stuff like that, which is understandable. It sounds like they petitioned the federal government for some sort of an allowance. And it's my understanding that it was back in when this crisis began, they asked the federal government to allow some kind of leeway. So they would have to make a hole sort of in the not a whole, but they'd have to make an adjustment or a, an amendment to our drug scheduling to make this possible. The federal government said they didn't want to do that because it's, uh, I guess, a tremendous amount of work, a bunch of uh, legal stuff that has to happen. And it's, I have no idea why that's difficult, but they gave them an um, emergency allowance, which instead of being a model where it would be uh, more of a commercial setup, where you'd walk into a dispensary of some sort and there'd be a, uh, you know, a clerk with some knowledge, you know, basically like what a cannabis store is now is mm -hmm. this is the, what I believe to be the general idea that most people are looking for uh, as the one that would actually help solve the problem. Because a lot of people, especially in the lower mainland, uh, you know, thinking about, people who use drugs on the downtown east side there's a lot of you know or maybe indigenous people first nations people who had issues with police or issues with kind of a a, a constant patronizing top down sort of hierarchy in our medical system so the idea was to kind of get this access set up with as low barrier with as low of a barrier as possible and make the whole thing not traumatizing if possible as well yeah, yeah well you know actually giving the person so my idea well i'll ask you Corey. what would your what would your idea be of a ideal safe supply scenario for our situation for prescribing or just in terms of the full sort of front to back in of care well would you set it up like the allowance that they've got now 
has it so that doctors must prescribe. It's still a prescription. Yeah. There's obvious problems, liabilities, you know, ethical issues with, you know, doctors for the last, what, uh, seven years, they've been taking a beating with the uh, ministry telling them that they don't want opiates. They want everybody prescribed off opiates and benzos because of the sort of pendulum swing away from the Oxycontin crisis. Um, so now they're getting this memo that says, <laughs> oh, by the way, can you prescribe uh, heroin and methamphetamines? And I mean, this first part is more about, it's more focused on like the fentanyl problem. Yeah, uh, They're not, they don't know what to do with stimulants. And honestly, it is a hell of a tough, um, it's a tough one. So when I look at it, I think that, like I understand how the federal government or anybody could see this as something that requires a doctor, but if you're trying to do it in the most efficient, low barrier to access way, it would be just a store, mm -hmm. in my opinion. I mean, you would go in and because if it's anything less than what that person uses normally, it's not real safe supply. Correct. If they use three grams of whatever, you know, maybe they prefer fentanyl, then it's got to be fentanyl. Maybe they shoot it. Then it's got to be enough for, you know, if they want a week's worth, so they don't have to come back every day, give them a week's worth of injectable fentanyl at the dose that they normally take. That would be, in my opinion, the way that this works best. Yeah. Anything um, less than that, and it, it will drive people to go back and continue to get it from the streets where it is not safe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I don't think anybody would be surprised by that. And I, I also believe that our health ministers are aware of that, mm -hmm. but this is the best they could do given the parameters that the federal government will allow. And I, I mean, this is kind of a big, you know, if, if this is to work, if this is to get through, this is, this would be a monumental progression in drug mm -hmm. policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think? Is this, uh, are they going to get there with this document in this, in this way? Is this a good enough kind of uh, allowance here from the federal government? You know, I, I guess in a, you and I were talking the other day or earlier about comparing it even more so to, to cannabis, that it is probably just the, the starting point. It's certainly not the perfected end point of this process. There's a point in, in the document that says that physicians will have the choice about prescribing. So if they, if they're not comfortable with it, if they're not interested in making that a part of their practice, they don't have to do it. That said, I, I would imagine that there will be an appetite or a, an openness, a willingness in our province for physicians, at least some within each region to, to be willing to do it. I there can will, verify that. Yes, it, it there does will appear. probably be exceptions, but yeah, but um, I would it, imagine it, that that won't be a problem. It appears to be. It's definitely a minority of physicians. Yeah, um, but they are out there. They're willing to do this. And one of the things they don't talk about in here is what your your liability insurance would be. I mean, people don't realize. I guess that all healthcare professionals are required to have some kind of liability insurance. I don't know what it would be like because you'd be kind of breaking new legal ground as well too. And the way it works in Canada is it's actually pretty hard to like, say somebody 
for whatever reason, they, they figure they're going to sue a doctor in this program. They get overprescribed or who knows what kind of shenanigans can go on. What does that look like as far as uh, required insurance? Like that, that alone could be an impediment. Mm-hmm. If it's, if you need 10 million of insurance just to practice, then a lot of physicians will maybe think, well, <laughs> is the government going to pay for that? Like who's, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's another issue I have with this model. It's an issue that's going to have to be dealt with. And as a pharmacist, I can tell you like the, they want to get as much data as they can out of out of this program if it moves forward, which is that's smart. It's totally understandable. But the way that they want to do that is through like a normal pharmacy dispensary methods. So that means there's going to have to be a, a certain amount of information that the patient provides about themselves. There's going to be a record of their drug use on Pharmanet. And I guess what they're going to do, it says in here, they're going to set up some products that are paid for and other products that are special authority. And I can't tell you how much of a pain in the ass that would be in this situation. Can you clarify, can you clarify for those who don't know what Pharmanet is? So in BC, we have a program, a computer program or a network, I guess it is that every prescription that goes through a pharmacy is recorded in this cloud-based program. And it records all that data, patient notes, uh, you know, all your details as far as phone number, contact, where you live, mm-hmm. um, age and all that kind of stuff, significant medical conditions, allergies, uh, you name it. But this is, uh, it's collected when you fill a prescription at a pharmacy and then it stays on there for a certain amount of years. And then I don't know what they do with it. That's great. It's just that in BC, we have a kind of a complicated healthcare program. It, like we we do a good job at at paying for lots of medications for people who need the medications paid for. It's just complicated to the point of it being a hindrance. And I'm saying that in the nicest, nicest possible way. Yeah. So, so the document says that. Pharmacare will cover the costs of safer, safer supply for eligible BC residents. Yes. Multiple problems in that sentence. Tell me. Eligible is the big, uh, mm-hmm. they've left this one kind of open, right? Open to interpretation. And I think it's the same with the physicians. It's basically, if you feel like you want to do it, do it, Right. Because there's no guidelines, there's no protocols. That's what the whole thing is about, is trying to bring those in. So this, because you're breaking new territory, it's kind of the same for patient eligibility. They don't know, this is not harm reduction. This is a, st- a step beyond, I guarantee it would, it would change things overnight if this, if this gets through. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, like, it's fine the way they've put eligibility in this document in that I think it can be interpreted as anybody who needs it, which is fine, but because they've decided to cover these products, and I guess I I really don't understand why they would do that. I mean, maybe they think that it'll cut down on like petty crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure, but what it will do is it will certainly, it will slow down the process. You know, they probably have lots of people who are going to use this program they either have had trouble at pharmacies or they don't have a home address or 
you know, it's going to be the documentation could be a problem alone. Mm -hmm. And now you're, you know, if you're asking eligibility and you're going to track how much this person is using, that means, you know, they're going to put limits on some things like that's how they do special authority. They might say, say you have diabetes and you have to, to get covered for diabetes supplies in BC, you have to go see a diabetic nurse and get uh, educated with all the materials. And once you present that, you know, kind of card that you've been educated, it goes on to PharmaNet. And then when you go to mm -hmm. a pharmacy, those medications get covered. This would be the same type of idea for the medications that are special authority. I, you know, who is making that call? You know, and that's not, uh, there's also issues with income too. And because there's, there's going to be people who have high incomes and they're going to come in there and they are going to have to pay. I can't imagine that most of the things they'll need here, like hydromorph is cheap. All these things should be fairly cheap, actually. Um, what is a form that would be expensive? I guess maybe if they wanted to, to do patches for some reason, maybe. But that's another thing, too. Like, is it going to be combined with opioid agonist therapy? I think they should maybe say no on that one and just get those people direct those people to pharmacies because it's already happening mm -hmm. and just focus solely on this, but naloxone uh, training, there should be naloxone kits definitely uh, available at a location. If the, it's gotta be a physical location of some sort. I wanted to ask you this point, and this fits right in with what you're saying here. Um, Tapering or transitioning if a patient is not taking or benefiting from use of prescribed safer supplied medication. So that's pretty subjective. Like if, if they're not, if they're not taking or benefiting, then there will be tapering or transitioning. So saying for the obvious one is like, you go back and say, Hey, this isn't, this isn't enough. This isn't cutting it for me. Would, yeah. would they look at things like a patch or like a something long acting? Is that what they mean? It's difficult to say what they mean. If this is real, you know, if this is a safe supply that it appears to be, as far as the language they're using is concerned, that means that every attempt is going to be made to listen to that, to the individual who comes in, the person who's using drugs to come in. It's not a, we're going to tell you what's going to happen. They're going to come in and they're going to say, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a, a bridge of trust there. This is how much I'm using. And this is the form I'm using it in. Can you help me? So the, the starting point should be absolutely. Let's, let's provide those items for you for the, as long as we can. And if they're open to, you know, you can ask, do you need any, uh, overdose equipment? Uh, how's your, do you, do you have needles? You know, could top up on harm reduction stuff at the same time. But I mean, I can't imagine a patient that's going to come in and say, yes, thank you. You've given me pharmaceutical grade fentanyl instead of the shit that was killing me and my friends mm -hmm. and it's not working for me. Like, I, I don't, I don't understand the circumstances really there. No, I, I'm not sure that I do either. And I guess unless there's a, unless we're talking about tolerance, what's the difference? I mean, if, if the goal of this model is to save lives. So if you cut a person off at a certain, you know, if there's some kind of limit that they're going to decide is too much for somebody to have, well, then you know what's going to happen. 
Yeah. So you would, to have somebody started on a program like this and then kicked off at a limit would be like a death sentence, in my opinion. But, so the, you know, the other point right after that is patient-centered procedures and processes to prevent displacement. For example, the receipt and use of medication by individuals who were not prescribed them for when displacement is suspected or confirmed. Yeah, see, this is another problem. It, uh, there's quite a few of these residual hang-ups. Mm-hmm. And they're just going to have to get over it. People are going to use, like, look, right now, I, I have old couples who come into the pharmacy and they're on the same medication because over the years they just trade. You go yeah. to an old folks home, it's like a it's like a flea market for drugs in there. They're trading Ramapril for Losartan and you know, it, like people don't always take their medication as directed, okay? Circumstances like this, maybe that person who gets the safe supply goes out and finds they've got a friend who's who's withdrawing and all they have as an option is shitty drugs. And they're like, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty topped up here. Take some of mine. So you're going to punish that person by limiting them from the program. Come on. Can't do it. Yeah. No, to me that, that sentence reads of fear of the unknown and keeping one, like you said, keeping one toe back. Um, There's no, like you said, there's no, that, that is not something that can be controlled. No, whether or not someone is going to share or use someone else's prescription or, or whatever. Once, once they walk out of the pharmacy, anyone it's out of their hands. Yeah. And that, I, I think it's when I look at this as a, a possible model where an individual would walk in and pay, just pay for whatever the, the medication is. No questions asked. Like I want three vials of uh, hydromorph. This is what it costs. It's pretty cheap. They're going to be paying for something anyway. So, you know, why another benefit of this model is to destroy the black market, Mm -hmm. right? You want these people who are putting those types of uh, the the lethal crap out on the streets. You want them to wither. Mm -hmm. So you're missing an opportunity, I think, by setting it up like this. But again, this may be the only option they have given the, like, I don't know what kind of negotiations went on with the federal government and compared to, like you said, I mean, the liberals compared to the NDP is kind of like a blue versus red situation, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it says also in the policy that, that people with lived experience will be a part of all of the decision-making along the way. And I, I just think that there will be tough conversations there and there will be meetings that as this goes on and the program has to adapt and, and kind of reorganize itself that will be really, will be really challenging. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think like when I first read this document, I was, I was chuckling a little bit just because of like the wording that they're using is excellent, but the message is not, it doesn't line up with the the type of language they're using. Mm-hmm. Like the language they're using says this is this is going to be a patient focused. It should even be called a patient person who uses drug focused program. We get the information we learn from them. 
not the other way around. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity for healthcare professionals to understand ways to really help people who are in a situation where if they're dependent on street drugs, then they're risking their life every single day. So that should be the most important kind of priority. The rest of this stuff, you know, the language, the whether or not there's going to be people with lived experience. And these are all kind of, uh, to me, they're like, they're pet words, right? Mm -hmm. And if they don't put them in there, then yeah, I, I mean, it's, politics, I guess. Mm -hmm. What would you say to someone who asks the question, and this is kind of, we know for a fact that there are people with this, who will be asking this question, people with this mentality that if you made it available without a prescription that anyone could walk in, then you're going to, you're going to see half the population hooked <laughs> and, and high on, on opiates. What would you say to that person? Well, I mean, I haven't seen all the evidence in the world and I haven't read every paper and every study and the evidence is scant in this area. Most of the stuff tends to be, uh, you know, you don't get funded unless you're coming up with, with negative studies when it comes to these types of drugs, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. But what appears like we can look at, you know, we do have some experience with cannabis and that was, th that fear was there too. Yes, and it was. And what ended up happening is, <laughs> I still find this amazing, but there was a there was more people, slightly more people tried marijuana, so there was kind of an opening up of it as an option. And these were people that the only reason they didn't try it was because it was illegal, which yeah. is that just boggles my mind. <laughs> like I can't. You're like, hmm, I would love to try some cannabis, but yeah, gosh darn it, it's illegal, so I won't. Like I, <laughs> that is, like I want to meet that person and be like, yeah. what in the hell? But it, this, you know, <laughs> everybody's got their uh, their lines in the sand. Sure, sure. So what happened is those people experimented with it. Mm -hmm. Most of them didn't become, well, the vast majority of them maybe became, didn't, certainly didn't become chronic users. And who knows, like, I didn't see any tracking that demonstrated that they were even uh, recreational users for very yeah. long after. I think there was a 1% shift and there was an actual decline with underage cannabis users by 1% or something. Mm -hmm. So nothing changed dramatically, but... I would take that as an overall, like the, the evidence does seem to suggest that cannabis smoking at a young age can exacerbate some mental health conditions. And that we know now with the way the brain develops that it's, you know, if you can avoid it, it's better. It's not the end of the world if you don't, but mm -hmm. uh, less kids smoking cannabis is better. So that's how it worked out there. I honestly, I mean, it's just speculation after that, really. What we know about addiction is that, you know, this isn't it's, what we learned in the 80s and 90s. We know is nonsense now. It's not, you know, like cigarettes. You can go buy cigarettes. Those are just as addictive or more addictive than any of these other products that you'd be. For sure. Uh, forming an addiction to a drug takes a little bit of time. It's not a one-time thing and it's, uh, you know, you totally lose control of your life. That's not how it works. That's a myth. So given the state of the world, I mean, this is another another thing to calculate into the, the whole equation yeah. is this is a very strange time for people to have access 
to drugs like opiates on a massive scale that solve like instantly solve your you know your anxiety about the state of the world and then you're into an ethics dilemma so mm-hmm. what 60 year old woman uh lives in a constant state of anxiety she's watching cnn all day long she can't turn off the tv she barely sleeps all the pharmaceutical meds that she takes are kind of you know keeping her somewhat sane but mostly she's losing it finally she decides to go in and try some uh hydromorph she has a couple capsules of hydromorph and all of a sudden her life improves dramatically is that bad (laughs) i don't know i I don't think that's bad no you know so i think there's it's it's a situation where you're wading into waters where there's i mean politically um medically legally there's just so many unknowns that you know it's you're not going to be able to form a document and a policy uh, uh, directive or any kind of guidelines until you start doing some pilots. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about it before on the, on the podcast that it was so revealing when the, the pandemic hit and everything got shut down. It was not even negotiable that liquor stores would remain open. It was just like <laughs> a, a, a given that they were essential. And we've talked about it really looking at liquor stores as as a source of safe supply mm-hmm. and um certainly the presence and the accessibility to liquor stores does not create more alcoholics out of people who aren't inclined to drink in the first place because that they're there yeah that does not seem to be the case and it's uh where i i do start to wonder is i've always kind of i've been curious about stimulants like uh methamphetamine especially from what i understand there's different kind of tiers of users in as far as meth goes there's rich kids who have access to 99.99 percent little statues of pure meth that they you know take a razor blade and just carve off a little bit and then either mm-hmm. snort it or smoke it that's that's their thing they do it once you know they want to go on a bender in vegas they'll be awake for three days that's that's a type of user then there's you know the uh socioeconomically depressed areas where everybody's using meth because their life sucks and it's horrible quality and you don't know what's in it and it's probably made in some guy's basement and i don't know how that translates to, I guess you could look at it and say, it's not very hard to find meth right now anyway. Like if you're, if you wanted to try meth, I think I would have to drive five minutes and it would take me maybe 10 minutes and I've never bought meth Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And I sort of look like a cop right now, but (laughs) (laughs) I guess I could still do it. Right. Yeah. So, So the question would be if, if people knew it was a safe product and it had that government stamp of, you know, it went through some sort of process that uh, meant it was rigorously tested, would that change people's idea? I don't, I, I can't imagine that it would, but you just, with that one, you don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, I, coming back to kind of your, the question that you asked me at the beginning, I think I come around to it being at least a time where someone has access to healthcare. That may be the only time that someone, someone sees a doctor within a month or within a week. And if they are able to, if it is a clinic 
or a setup that is run that is holistic where they can see a doctor and see a nurse practitioner and have some other services at the same time and maybe get linked up with other things that they may need. That could be a really good thing. It could be a really, really cool thing. And again, it could be the only time someone is going to cross paths with a healthcare professional and it will be a, again, hopefully, ideally a trust building experience. Absolutely. And, with, and without that, then we're we're worse off. We're yeah. absolutely worse off. And as a as a time for the province and the medical community and the community of people who are using drugs to get used to the, what this is going to be like. And then like you said, maybe like cannabis, they the healthcare system backs off and says, Okay, this is we're not needed here. This yeah. is this can get on better without us. That may be so. Yeah. You know, if you're a person who uses drugs and you're at risk of, you know, you're using some kind of a, a drug that's not being tested and you, you're kind of rolling the dice every day, I think there needs to be some understanding that these processes are not easy from a legal standpoint. Uh, it's not easy to get healthcare professionals on board, and that is what's required in this under these circumstances so for a starting point you know you talk about building trust i think that's if this model is going to move forward it's a big opportunity to stop to make sure that there's not people in there we don't want healthcare professionals who are going to be in there who are going to take that you know top down uh patriarchal you're less than me that kind of stance cannot totally. be it, it must be a non-judgmental, safe, you know, you don't want to see judgment. You want to just, how are you doing today? You know, what can we do for you? Basically. Is, mm-hmm. And over time, I think there's, there's a big opportunity to build relationships that could teach this province a tremendous amount about, you know, different ways that this could be tackled down the road. This yes. is kind of like a, this is an opportunity to, open doors and also save a bunch of lives. Yeah. And I think the, I think the length of time that this has gone on without a big step like this, without a big move towards creating a safer circumstance for anyone who's using drugs, that in itself, that length of time that has passed and that horrific death toll that is accumulated has damaged that trust. Oh, and damaged the yeah. relationship. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was already, I mean, it's a bad relationship to start. Mm-hmm. And yeah, each passing day, every coroner's report, every, you know, now we're into five digits. We don't want to see this thing hit six digits. No. We don't want to see that. Every single one of these deaths is a death that is going to not only affects us now, it affects our communities, their families, friends, and our, you know it ripples outwards into the whole province. But these deaths will be—they'll be affecting us for years to come because it's hollowing us out. These are taking people that are not retirement age. There's, you know, it's it's taking people who are like twenty to forty-nine, basically. That's the majority of it. Yeah, I've got the August statistics in front of me here from from BC: one hundred and sixty-nine deaths from illicit drugs uh, in August and 71% were aged 30 to 59. Yeah. 71%. Yeah. And that's your, 
you know, if you want to look at it like uh, a cold hearted business person, that starts to affect your uh, GDP. Yeah. I mean, yeah. every t- you're losing a lot of people who are, could have a job somewhere and could be producing products. <laughs> I mean, they've in this document, I think they uh, open with some kind of number is like a billion a year. Oh, here we go. The total health costs of opioid use in BC. So it's just opioids are estimated to exceed 90 million annually. And the economic cost of lost productivity associated with opioid use is close to 1 billion a year. So uh, what do we spend to uh, run our healthcare system in BC? What is it now? Like 10 billion? It's always going up. (laughs) I'll have to check on that. Maybe it's a trillion. (laughs) But uh, 1 billion a year, uh, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of money for BC. And yeah, we'll see, I guess. I mean, I, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's a problem that's going to get rushed by a economic factor, No, but there are certainly, you know, there's going to be people who are looking at that and, and scratching their heads. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know, like there's no indication as to what drugs would be provided other than they say, it will be it'll be started with opioids and then uh they don't know what to do with stimulants yet so they're going to go opioids first see how it goes and then so i'm guessing that means no cocaine either i have not seen cocaine listed on this document i was looking for it mm-hmm. and because the number of overdose and i i haven't seen that statistic either about the number of overdoses related to or accidental overdoses related to cocaine use when they're not even aware that they're taking a opiate in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I lost a, a friend's father. He uh, came to Kelowna and was just a recreational user and got a hold of some cocaine that had fentanyl in mm. opioid naive gone. Yeah. And I don't know how those get counted. You know, would they count that as an op- illicit opioid death? I think they, I, I think they would like, or at least I'm, re- I'm recalling scenarios that I encountered when I was a nurse, where it was certainly called uh, an opioid overdose that didn't line up with what the, say the friends or the people that were with the individual were saying, like we were just partying, we were having some drinks. He did a little, what we thought was a little bit of Coke kind of a thing. And I, yeah. I remember situations like that, that were, but it gets, it gets called a, uh, an opioid overdose. Yeah, I I did some digging probably about a year ago to try and see if I could parse out if the Stats Canada was keeping track of opioids versus, you know, cocaine deaths or mm-hmm. stimulant deaths or whatever. And I couldn't really, I couldn't find any information that was useful. So I don't, uh, I don't know if that's a lack of data mining ability on my part or if that's uh, because it's just not available. You would think though that it would be beneficial to, you know, not, you want those numbers as clear as possible. And if it's a, you know, lots of them are going to be a poly substance. So if they're poly substance, great. Yeah. Put all those down and that's a category. Even with these, even with these adulterants, you know, don't just say it was uh, Italazotam or whatever the new benzo is they're putting in there, you know, say exactly what was, what was in there and then, mark that down and keep mm-hmm. all that information so that you can track where this is going. 
I don't know what the coroner, uh, coroner, I don't know what the coroner's uh, obligated to do or, you know, what their responsibility is. Mm -hmm. They do seem to be quite pissed. The coroner service. Yes. I would imagine they're very tired of this. They've been one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most outspoken advocates within the, the establishment of our, of our province. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine you're, that's your job and it's, you're seeing these, you know, it'll be, here's a 24 year old successful business guy. Here's like, I just lost a, a friend, got her whole life in front of her. Mm -hmm. Beautiful girl, you know, uh, bright gone. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, that has got to be hard. When I start looking at these, uh, medication coverage issues, because I mean, how are you going to, is it going to be that they need to go back to the doctor again and say, I mean, the doctor's only going to, they're going to say once, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Let's give you this. Yeah. Yeah. So what, <clears throat> what special authority, what would that person need to get this extra thing? Like they, they're only providing snortable uh, cocaine, but this person doesn't have a working uh, nasal passage. So then they qualify for injectable. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like what? I, I don't know. When you say, when you said a moment ago about the perils of having pharmacare involved, um, do you just, do you mean as a, just an added layer of bureaucracy that will complicate matters and muddle things up? Yes. Yeah. It's going to slow things down tremendously because it, it does that already with like normal pharmacy. Patients don't understand what's going on. Like, what do you mean? I got the doctor. Lots of times what will happen is you'll get somebody who's, you know, average income. They go in to see the doctor for, they get an expensive medication. The doctor tells them that they've applied for special authority. So they've, they've met the criteria for whatever is going to make this drug covered. But then they go down, they don't understand that just goes towards your deductible. So you still might be paying the whole thing if your mm. income is such and such. So then patients get mad, right? They're like, but my doctor just told me that the special authority, as pharmacists, you're like, you got to try to explain it, but it's very complicated. And there's two tiers, you know, you, it starts at 70 and then you get, uh, you have to go for a while before you hit hundred percent and it's only certain drugs and there's a reference drug program. And it's just, it's, it's a smart way of doing it for saving money on generics and stuff. And I, I applaud them for that. But the way that the program is rolled out is terrible. There needs to be substantial cutting of red tape and streamlining. So that could be a barrier that could actually push someone back to, yes, absolutely. to finding another option. Yeah. And yeah. Putting well, them at risk. well, let's, let's say the person comes in um, and this is a, a dispensary that's just started this. They come in on a Friday and they need approval for whatever. It's just past 4 p.m. Special approval closes. So now they're going to be going to be Saturday, Sunday, Monday, probably Tuesday at the fastest that they get special authority. So they're already four days off. They don't have the product they need. Mm. Then that's not safe supply. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't know, but got to start somewhere. I mean. Yeah. It, and I think I applaud BC for being in the position where we're at right now. And I hope that it sets an example for other places across Canada, because it's certainly not just here that, that needs this. Yeah, you're right about that. And I think it would, this would be such a historical progression 
mm-hmm. not just in North America, but in the world. I mean, BC would would really, you know, come back as far as a progressive part of the world if we were able to pull this off. Yeah. And track it properly and, you know, I think it can be done. 